Are you looking for your next podcast binge to lose yourself in? Let me introduce you to a story that begins with sweet romance but quickly turns into betrayal and the far-reaching consequences of one man's deceit. It's an account told by the women whose lives were forever changed by it. You probably think the stories about you is a podcast hosted by Brittany Art. And it's not just another podcast. It's an exploration of self-discovery, growth, resilience, and healing. And it's all told in a unique format. And this is why I'm so excited about this one. This is Brittany's story, but she doesn't just host it like a podcast in the traditional sense. Through immersive soundscapes and the voices of the women affected by these events, this podcast creates such a unique experience experience that's going to make your headphones glow in the dark. I can't wait to get started and I hope you'll join me. Listen and follow. You'll probably think the stories about you wherever you listen to podcasts. We got to give people a why. You know, we got to give people something that's worth contacting all of this stuff. The question that we end up spending a lot of time on, oftentimes before we even kind of touch into how eating needs to change or how self-concepts need to shift or, or anything like that, any kind of big behavioral changes is the what for. So what is it that you care about? You're listening to Dr. Emily Sandos on Psychologists Off the Clock. Curious what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoengren, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. I'm happy to bring you today an interview that I did with Dr. Emily Sandos about her work on body image and eating disorders. And this is an episode I think that pairs nicely with our previous episode about the hungry brain with Dr. Stefan Guyane. Um, these two episodes, I think, are a little bit different in their focus, but they're similar in the sense that they both look at psychological processes that underlie eating and body-related behavior and thinking. And so last week, we were talking about the brain processes that are involved in overeating. And this week, Dr. Sandos is talking to us about the painful thoughts and emotions that can come up related to our bodies and how for some people, those thoughts and emotions can really lead us into some unhelpful eating patterns and behavior. Sometimes it might be over, overly rigid about eating or eating too much or really centering our life a bit too much on, on that sort of preoccupation we can get into with our body. Well, and when I was listening to your episode, I also was been reading the, uh, my monthly APA monitor. And this month, they list their top 10 most downloaded articles from APA of the 40,000 published. And number two was actually an article by Sherlock and Wagstaff. And it was called The Relationship Between Frequency of Instagram Use, Exposure to Idealized Images, and Psychological Wellbeing in Women. And what this article found was that there was an association between the amount of Instagram use that you have and depressive symptoms, lower self-esteem, and more general physical appearance, anxiety, as well as body dissatisfaction, which I think makes sense, right? Of course, it's an association, not causation. So it could be that you're more dissatisfied with your body, so you go on Instagram more. But at the same time, it seems like we're communicating via images so much. And it seems like it's really having an impact on how much we're obsessing about our bodies and also the perfectionism that we're seeing. And I'm definitely seeing that more in my practice in terms of more people that have um, a focus of body dysmorphia or body dissatisfaction. Some people coming in that are saying that they've done so much tweaking to their images to post online that they end up feeling fearful of meeting people for real in person because their skin won't look the same or their nose doesn't look the same. And it can actually really be quite debil debilitating. Yeah, it's true. It can really start to, to set standards that are just kind of ridiculous, really, not just unrealistic. They're 
absurd. And then we can get really trapped by that. Yeah. And then our, I think our inner commentary can be really particularly harsh. And that's what I really liked about what Dr. Sandoz talks about in this episode. And I was wondering, yeah, if you could do a little exercise with me that sometimes I do with my clients when they come in with a lot of negative self-criticism about their bodies. Sure. Yeah. You down for it? Okay. Okay. I'm down. <laughs> so what I first want you to do is I want you to think about, and you don't have to say this out loud, but I want you to think about maybe something that you chronically comment to yourself about your own body in a negative way. So it could be something about your own self. You got something? I got something. I, I don't mind sharing it. So I've got the frizziest hair imaginable. So it, it drives me crazy. It has never been fashionable. If I had been in, you know, uh, in my 20s, in the 80s, it would have been perfect. But <laughs> in the 21st century, it's not working for me. <laughs> Is there anything like a particularly negative thing that you say about your frizzy hair, like a, a descriptive word that you use about it that's pretty like critical? Um, yeah. So I had a friend who used to call me Q-tip in uh, junior high because I was mm-hmm. small in the bottom and frizzy on the top. <laughs> so sometimes I'll look at myself and say, oh, Q-tip or poodle. Sometimes I feel like a poodle. <laughs> you, think you look like a poodle. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, so what I want you to do, so that's the commentary that you prob- you may say to yourself and you know, fairly frequently, potentially, you say that to yourself. And what I want you to do is to imagine that you were walking through Trader Joe's one day and someone were to come up to you, a stranger, and say that to your face, what would that feel like? Um, I can feel my face going red and just wanting to hide. <laughs> I wanted to hide. Yeah. Okay. Now I want you to imagine that you're walking through Trader Joe's with your three sons and a stranger comes up to your oldest son and tells him that. How do you feel and what do you want to do? Oh, I just want to protect my son and and say something to that stranger to let them know that that's not appropriate. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So the way in which we talk to ourselves can be extremely harsh and critical, but we've gotten so habituated and fused with it that we don't even notice how incredibly mean it is until we can do a little bit of a separation like that. And maybe for our listeners, they can think about some things that they've said to their own selves about their bodies and, um, and take a little perspective on it. Yeah. Wow, that's very touching, you guys. Thank you for doing that exercise. It's a nice way to introduce this wonderful episode with Dr. Sandos on her approach to working with body image and eating disorders. So I hope you all enjoy. Dr. Emily Sandos is an endowed professor of social sciences in the psychology department at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Emily is the director of the Louisiana Contextual Science Research Group and the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Contextual Behavioral Science. She has co-authored three books on acceptance and commitment therapy for struggles with eating and body image, along with chapters and journal articles on ACT, relational frame theory, values, the therapeutic relationship, and psychological flexibility. Emily has led more than 70 professional training workshops around the world and serves as a peer-reviewed ACT trainer. She also practices as a clinical psychologist focusing on clinical behavioral analysis of body-related difficulties. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to just start by kind of getting a sense of, you know, what's the issue here? Most of us have probably experienced some self-critical thinking around our bodies or, you know, negative feelings about our bodies. I know I certainly have, and I think that's probably a pretty common experience for most people. But some people can really get kind of into a deep struggle when it comes to their bodies. And in your book, you call it body image and flexibility. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what is that? What do you mean by that? And what can be the cost for people who are really deep in that struggle? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there has been a lot of focus over the, the past probably mm, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years on body image. And oftentimes, traditionally, when we would think about body image, we think about it in terms of, are you seeing your body? Are you experiencing your body positively or negatively? And that positive or negative was really about the thoughts and feelings. You know, were they good feelings or bad feelings? Were they self-critical thoughts or were they self-positive 
thoughts. Um, and that has been really traditionally um, how we've thought about body image. And that model tends to fall short, um, in part because negative body image isn't just about what happens on the inside. You mentioned cost. I mean, it's also about how we respond to those thoughts and feelings. So gradually, that idea of negative body image being just a, a self-critical thought like, oh, I'm so gross, my skin is so ugly, or I'm so fat, um, or a bad feeling that I might get when I look in the mirror or have to dress up and get in front of people. Instead of just stopping there, we started to understand that, that there are all these problematic ways that people respond to that. So when I have that thought, oh, I can't get up in front of all these people, you know, do I end up skipping class? Um, do I end up spending an hour and a half in the mirror? Um, do I end up, you know, avoiding physical contact because I don't want anybody to feel the bulges in my body or to touch the, the imperfections in my skin? So gradually that idea of negative body image started to expand to um, include how invested we felt in our body. We call that body image investment or body image avoidance. You know, are we avoiding important things in our life to to, uh, to manage those negative thoughts and feelings. Um, and over time, um, what I sort of was wanting to kind of bring to the field is the idea that maybe that's what's most important. So consistent with a broader movement uh, in you know, psychology and in mental health, um, the idea of psychological flexibility is that it's not just the thoughts and feelings themselves. And in fact, it might not even matter that much um, how negative or positive those thoughts and feelings are. What really matters most is how we respond to them, how invested we get in them, how much we allow them to take over when they come up, how much they dominate our attention, our awareness, our experience, and our behavior, um, you know, our overt behavior, actually, how we engage in the world. So maybe it doesn't matter so much if I have the thought, I'm really pretty, or I'm really ugly, or my body is beautiful, and my body is awful. Maybe what matters most is if when that comes up, I'm able to live my life the most effectively and meaningfully as I can. Um, so succinctly, I think body image flexibility is just that, is being able to let the experience of the body kind of flow in the way that it will, let it come and go, positive or negative, and to be able to still engage in effective, meaningful action in my life. Okay. So it's really when people get so trapped in that, that they're, they're missing out on areas of their life that are important, or they're doing things to try to mitigate those thoughts and feelings that really get in the way of, of, of living, living full. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so it really has different implications, you know, I mean, the, the sort of body positive movement was kind of an answer initially to that, that previous, that more simple definition of negative body image. So our idea was, well, if people like think bad about their body, then they can just practice thinking good about their body. Mm -hmm. um, so this idea that, that that was really where the energy needed to go. Um, the problem is, of course, that our minds don't always comply. <laughs> so... I can tell myself I'm, you know, pretty or thin or fit or that it doesn't matter what my body or appearance looks like. And it turns out that it doesn't, my mind doesn't necessarily come along and cooperate. Um, so the implications are a little different, right? So if it's, if it's not just that I had a, a negative or self-critical thought or feeling um, about my body, that's important. Um, then I don't really need to focus on changing that. What I would need to focus instead on is if on the day that my thoughts and feelings about my body were the worst, could I still engage my life? Can I still have my most broad awareness, my most broad and flexible experience? Can I still do the things that really matter to me? And that's where the emphasis would be then, not on changing the thoughts and feelings themselves, but on building the rest of my repertoire when those thoughts and feelings come up. Yeah, I love that. I, I think when I think of the word acceptance of body image, what I think of is like being okay with your body. But what you're talking about is different. I think you take a different spin on that than the traditional view, which is more of the acceptance of all of that internal stuff that comes up, the thoughts, the emotions. And I think you, you focus on that a bit in your approach. How do you address that in the approach that you take? 
Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. So instead of it being, can I accept my body the way that it is? Um, um, it would be more, can I accept my experience of my body the way that it is? The approach would mean actually coming into contact with all of the, the situations internal or external that bring up that stuff we used to call negative body image to, that bring up those hard um, experience of the body, the ones that tend to squeeze us down and limit us and upset us. So intentionally stepping into those um, and exercising our skills at um, living our lives with them. There's a, a, a sort of way that I think about acceptance and like uh, it's similar to accepting another person. Um, it doesn't mean that you like everything that they do, <laughs> you know, um, when you, when you love a person, for example, um, it means loving them on the days that they do all of the things that you want them to do. And it also means loving them on the days that they do not the things that you want them to do. You might really want them to change. You might ask that of them. You might create situations where they are different, um, so that they can better meet your needs. You know, this is not about um, not, you know, changing the body. Um, it's about recognizing the difference between changing the body and changing our experience of the body or changing our lives and changing the experience of the body. So it might involve um, people interacting with their body, like, you know, seeking, um, you know, different changes to the body that might be part of it for them but it's not to change their experience of it. What we recognize is that, you know, turns out people can lose lots of weight. People can get tons of plastic surgery. People can fundamentally change the way that they dress or groom themselves. And those thoughts and feelings tend to hang on. Like once that's your stuff, <laughs> um, it kind of is just your stuff. <laughs> um, so instead we want to bring that stuff up and make it to where you can handle it differently. Along those lines of trying to make changes to one's body, I think often people genuinely come from a place of caring about their health and wanting to do, you know, healthy eating and that kind of thing. And they can become so overly concerned with their health that they can actually get into some unhelpful or rigid patterns around eating and that can contribute to some of these body image issues. What are your thoughts about that? Right. Absolutely. Well, and it's an important question because a lot of times people, especially these days, especially in the last, you know, five or 10 years, uh, people can find their way to these rigidities via health concerns, you know, so often trying to keep up with the latest diet, you know, take the advice of, of um, what's the best way to stay fit? What's the best way to reduce inflammation? What's the best way to cope with aging? I mean, whatever it is, we're sort of um, constantly, uh, you know, attacked by all of this information um, coming at us. And a lot of times folks start with a really kind of genuine and um, I think pure and well-intentioned effort to just wanting to be healthy, um, like I said, especially recently. And um, what ends up happening, though, is that that becomes like a proxy for being good, for being worthy, for being okay in the world, um, you know, for, for just being good enough. Um, and so we can retain the important parts of it, the, the desire to be healthy, the, the meaning that's around health, um, without it kind of standing in for everything else. So our goal then would be, can you be a full dynamic person where there are many proxies for your health? Can we be aware of many ways um, that you could be healthy and that we could assess that health, that you could assess it um, that, you know, in a moment-to-moment way? How, how healthy am I feeling right now? That maybe has nothing to do with, you know, how tight your pants feel or what you look like in the mirror. So expanding that um, relationship with the body might be one way, just the sensory relationship to not focus just on appearance if that's where the, the concerns lie. Um, to expand our experience of eating healthy, healthfully, um, without it being focused just on whether it's calories or carbs or paleo or whatever the mm -hmm. rules are. Um, so moving people from more rigid and limited ways of experiencing themselves, their bodies, 
their foods, um, situations where there are foods. I mean, any place where that there's that rigidity, we want to expand it and make it more flexible. So make it broader and more flexible. And that's in all those domains. So it might be things like, you know, I teach people to pay attention to their body. We don't start there because a lot of times that's really super challenging. We might start with paying attention to other stuff like sounds in the room or things that they see around them and gradually move that that broadening of awareness, that skill of being able to pause and broaden awareness, gradually moving that internally. So can I be aware of the different sensations in my body, which is a really kind of dangerous thing if it's something that you struggle with, if you struggle with body image stuff. Same kind of model that we would apply to your way of thinking about health. So can we take this very limited, very rigid, narrow way of thinking about health and expand it out? You know, can we broaden it out um, to where in the moment that you're you know, making food selections or that you're actually experiencing, you know, different tastes of food, can we can we broaden that out and vary it out? Can we come to to build your noticing of different textures? you're noticing of different flavors. These are all things that at the extreme end of eating or body image issues, they start to drop out. That's aversive. It's It feels dangerous. There's lots of different flavors all mixed together. If there's lots of different textures, then it's hard for me to know if there might be something you know, scary or bad for me in there. Um, so starting just by just by building that variability um, is really the, the nature of my work. You know, there's a big emphasis in um, on monitoring. And so there's some practical things that make sense if you're having trouble um, being rigid about your diet in ways that are good for you. If you're having trouble, um, you know, maintaining a particular you know, exercise pattern or something like that. So things like Fitbits or keeping food diaries. I mean, these are all things that people might suggest as positive if we're kind of behaving erratically in an unstructured way. For a lot of the people I work with, it's like throw away the Fitbit, throw away the scale, you know, get rid of the food diary. We're not going to be writing down everything that you eat um, in part because it's that degree of control and rigidity that plays into all this. So I, I want my clients to get to a point where they can take a bite of something and enjoy it and experience it without being fully sure what all is in it. Um, it seems like a small thing, but for many of them, it's, it's a really big deal. Yeah, that can be a huge step, I think. And just that idea that, that you're really trying to look at other aspects of the self and kind of try on new behaviors. Because I do think that's, to me, that's that inflexibility bit is when people get so locked into a certain, you know, something they're fixated on or a certain behavior pattern that that, that sort of takes over. And the Absolutely. other parts of the self, you know, are just nowhere to be found. Absolutely. So the, the concept of health gets narrowed, the, con the um, attention gets narrowed. And, and just like you're mentioning, I mean, my perception of myself when I'm sort of deep in that struggle, my perception of myself is really like self as body. <laughs> you know, it almost becomes a, a, a no self. I mean, um, I am, if I, you know, perform something badly, if I get any kind of negative feedback, I'm just kind of wake up on the wrong side of the bed. If I'm kind of getting sick, all of those experiences where I could in a healthy place say, Oh, maybe work is starting to stress me out. Maybe I, you know, shouldn't take this way to work anymore. Or, um, you know, maybe I need to drive less or sleep more or whatever that could give me meaningful information about what's going on that all gets filtered into you know, I'm fat or I'm ugly or, you know, um, that fault that I have a very clear and it's adaptive because I have a very clear way of handling that often. So if I feel fat, I go for another run or I skip a meal, um, or I socially withdraw, you know, it's a, it's comes to stand in for, um, any difficulty or any self-related concern, any other related concern really, almost everything um, at the most extreme versions. It can come to stand in for almost everything. And it makes the world orderly. You know, I have these very clear solutions. If my goal is to lose weight, here is the thing to do. If my goal is to have pretty skin, here is the thing to do. It kind of simplifies the world um, and oftentimes makes a life that isn't really worth living for a lot of folks. So yeah. Um, it uh, it takes away everything that's really important, I think, to begin with. 
Yeah, not only that, it, it doesn't really truly work because you're never going to quite get there, right? I mean, they're always going to, that struggle's going to persist. Even if you do oh, X, Y, Z, sometimes it just digs us in much deeper. You also take that more acceptance, mindfulness-based approach. You, your work is really heavily rooted in acceptance and commitment therapy. In, in working with eating disorders and problematic eating behaviors, what, is, what does that approach add to working with eating disorders that's unique? You know, I think the big contribution there is that the the struggle with eating disorders has always been, at least, you know, at least in my impression, the struggle with eating disorders has always been that um, there's there's not a sense oftentimes, especially at the ex- in the extreme levels, you know, when folks are more chronic on the more chronic end or more extreme end, um, there is not a sense of anything that they are working for. You know, there's a common impression that people are sort of, you know, that it's a, a vain, a vain sort of disorder that people are like seeking beauty and that that's what's most important, you know, but phenomenologically. And, you know, when I'm sitting with folks that are in this situation, when I'm, you know, reflecting on my own struggles or those of people around me, you know, it's not about going after something that you want. It's about running away at breakneck speed from these things that you don't want, you know? Um, And so the thing that I think that, that act really has added um, to the eating disorder field. And it's sort of, it's sort of diffused into some other approaches as well by now is this idea of we got to give people a why, (laughs) you know, we got to give people something that's worth contacting all of this stuff. It's not about saying a little bit earlier, it's not about, am I willing to gain another pound? You know, gaining another pound means all of these other things. It means I'm out of control. It means that my life isn't sustainable. It means that, you know, um, other people might interact with me differently. It has all these social threats that come with it, you know, embedded in that one more pound or that, you know, extra meal or whatever it is, is all of this other stuff. And people have to have a reason to do that terribly difficult work. If I'm willing to die for this, I'm willing to die to get away from how bad it feels to not be fully in my eating disorder you know, then we got to find something that's that, that's that important, that, that is that meaningful or that significant. Um, that's the question that I end up asking people, you know, I've gone and done um, workshops with folks that are inpatient or certainly in my private practice. The question that we end up spending a lot of time on, oftentimes before we even kind of touch into how eating needs to change or how cell concepts need to shift or, or anything like that, any kind of big behavioral changes is the what for. So what is it that you care about? And a lot of times folks aren't able to answer that question the way that you or I could today. You know, um, they found themselves to a place where we've really got to, we've really got to imagine a world where things could be different for you. We've really got to imagine a world, you know, before the eating disorder, we've really got to imagine possibilities. And at the very early stages, it might not be things that are super meaningful. It might be something that you like. Um, you know, can you, can you, can you say out loud that you like something and then go and seek it out? Um, you know, that's how kind of lost people can get, I guess, in the eating disorder that early values work, what we might call values work and in, in act, you know, at the, the earliest stages might be just teaching people to want again um, from a place that's all about don't want, um, teaching people to want again, teaching them to um, go out and, and get something. And I'm talking very, very minor like I like to sit in the park and watch the leaves, you know, move with the wind. I mean, that might not be my ultimate value in life, but for a lot of folks that are struggling with eating disorders, that would be an expansion from where they're at. You know, that would be, that would loosen up some rigidity and loosen up some control. So I think that's the first thing that, um, that act brings to the eating disorder treatment. And and like I said, and it's, 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 
evident that it's sort of diffusing into some of the other CBT uh, traditions, some of the other CBT approaches, is this idea that we got to know what people are going to work for, you know, what's going to be worth coming into contact with all of this stuff that the eating disorder is protecting them from, because it does have a function. I mean, it doesn't work long term for thriving, but it's it's keeping folks doing stuff and it's keeping them um, away from the things that are hard for them you know, um, in this really kind of twisted, toxic way. Well, and I think what you're speaking to, you know, that old metaphor from ACT about how values and pain are two sides of the same coin, right? Is that often people have really lost contact with the important things in their life. And what's really going on there, if you dig into it, is the pain and that they really, you know, they have to be willing to, for some of that pain to show up in order to change. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, and the, the value stuff sort of, you know, dignifies that, <laughs> you know, this is going to be hard work that we're going to do. You know, one of the challenges I think always that comes up around eating disorders is that it is physically dangerous. <laughs> and for clinicians or family members or loved ones or anything, anyone else that's kind of interacting with and loving the, the individual with a disordered eating issue is this sort of, yeah, 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 your pain, but also you're going to die. <laughs> you know, if you don't do something different, like you could physically harm yourself in really serious ways. Um, and that makes that slow moving work around like, what do you want and what do you like and can you even imagine if you had 10 minutes to relax or rest somewhere like where might you seek and what might you want that slow work around what's meaningful and can we get you wanting again it's incredibly difficult it's hard for family members to understand it's hard for medical staff to understand it's hard for some therapists to understand because we want to jump in and say here's the plan you have to eat at least this much go do it you know um here's the plan and, you know, get those negative thoughts, push them out of the way, add a positive thought and and get moving. And we just haven't been really successful, um, frankly, um, in treating eating disorders in that way. It works really well when we can um, put people inpatient and manage everything that they experience. Um, Not so well when they're plopped back into their lives. Um, So yeah, so being able to, being willing to experience all that to me, being willing to experience all of that stuff that the eating disorder has been saving them from, um, it depends on having a sense of something that they want that's more than, you know, thin. Um, Or if we're just talking more generally about body image um, disorders, you know, that whole sort of area of body image related disorders, something more than the body being a particular way or my experience of my body being a particular way. So yeah, I often ask people just like, what's more important than that? You know, um, and it may take them a while to get to the point that they can answer that in any kind of meaningful way. Yeah. And now what about um, how do you interact with people around their thinking patterns around body and food? Sure. So, you know, the most simple answer is we just kind of notice them <laughs> um, and not not even just the patterns themselves, but actively the process of thinking. You know, from an ACT perspective, our emphasis is not we, we emphasize, you know, cognitive uh, experiences or cognitions, cognitive behavior, just like anybody else does within CBT. But the way that we emphasize it is a little different. Um, you know, we, we um, sort of respect and validate the experience of how painful those negative thoughts can be, those self-critical thoughts can be. We also acknowledge how they function, you know, how they might save you. I'm fat is an easier thought. It's a terrible thought and it's an easier thought than I am unworthy of love, right? What do I do about being unworthy of love? Uh, You know, what do I do about being fat? I'll go for a run, I go for a diet, I can do some more research on the latest keto, you know, recipes. There's lots to be done about that. Not so much unworthy of love. So there's a, a an awareness, a noticing of what is the thought that tends to squeeze my world down. You know, what are the thoughts, what are the, what are the thoughts that come with that? What are the feelings that come with that thought? And then almost the leaning in, like, 
is there a thought that's underneath that or a feeling that's underneath that, you know, that's even more difficult um, that this is sort of standing in for? So the most simple answer would be we, mo- we notice them. We notice the thoughts. Um, and the process of that, I think, is a process of building a skill, um, a skill of noticing, a skill of noticing not just in innocuous situations, but in the most challenging situations. So we might start with something less threatening, um, like, can I just practice paying attention to my thinking while it's happening, um, you know, initially in a, a not challenging situation or not my thoughts about a not challenging topic, like, can I just notice this cup or this pen or this weather um, and see what my mind has to say about that? Um, and then I might gradually work with people to more challenging topics, you know, to, okay, what are the thoughts that show up when I look in the mirror? The goal when I'm looking in the mirror and experiencing these self-critical thoughts would be simply to notice them, to notice them as a part of my experience, just like the air conditioner might kick on and off and I might suddenly have the thought, how long have I been doing this? I have an appointment after this or whatever. Can, Can those thoughts like, you know, you're fat or you're ugly or disgusting or whatever flavor it is, can those rise and fall just like any other aspect of my experience? So it's really a a mindful awareness. It's what we call, we call it cognitive diffusion. And the diffuse to me is um, pointing to a separation between that thought and the whole rest of my experience. So can we kind of peel that apart where that one thought doesn't dominate everything in my experience, but it's just a part of it. Yeah. And that I, as a clinician, I think that that process is so huge because whether it's related to you know, bodies and eating or anything else, just because we get so caught in our thoughts that 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 act of noticing, we just don't, we just buy right into our thoughts. We don't even notice them as thoughts. And so that process can make a big difference. It takes some practice. But once people start to do that, it's, you know, it's really helpful. Absolutely. And you know what, it, it's something that I think if we're, if it's us, if we're kind of trying on this journey by ourselves, if we're trying to help a loved one through, it's something that I think is, is really, really challenging. I mean, when the thought comes up, when a, a self-critical thought comes up, we want to either, and we don't even realize that we're doing it, you know, we either find all the evidence for it or, you know, we try to rebut it. Um, so if I'm sitting with a loved one, you know, somebody that I care about and they say like, oh, I'm so disgusting, like don't even look at me. And my inclination is to want to say like, you are so not, please yeah. stop. You know, <laughs> I want to point out their beautiful hair or how pretty their skin is or, you know, or how that doesn't matter because we're just sitting here drinking a glass of wine, um, you know, but but that doesn't really end up being like really helpful. You know, what that ends up saying is like, you don't get to have your experience here. Um, or, you know, I couldn't possibly understand how you could feel that way. You know, it's a, it's an isolating, um, response, even if the person knows that it comes from a place of caring. So I think that is a a big deal and a a challenging part, you know, so as a loved one, it might be something like, oh, I'm sorry, it feels that way today. You know, I hate that me being here makes you feel disgusting, right? I'm acknowledging it. We're noticing it together. And I'm intentionally saying like, I am glad to be here and sad that me being here is making you feel that way. I am so glad you said that because that happened to me recently with a friend who wants to lose a few pounds. And my immediate response was reassurance. Like, you don't need, you know, I think that's so, it's so maybe not what the person needs. And it's so tempting to just jump right into that, to reassurance. Absolutely. Yeah. Or on the other end, like, or the like, you know, oh, I got some tips, you know, I have a great trainer, (laughs) you know, have you tried keto or time-restricted feeding or, you know, it's so, it's so easy to jump in and either buy like, oh, you want to lose weight? Here we go. Let's do it. Let's take that thought as, you know, reality Um, or to reap that does, that isn't real. Act sort of takes off the table the the idea of thinking of thoughts as either fused or not fused, either standing in for the rest of the world and dominating our experience or just kind of part of our experience like anything else. I think a, a huge contribution there is that idea of, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be 
the the responding to the content of the thought that's important, you know, we can just decide how much we let it take over. And that can be the more important thing. I think in that, in, you know, the contextual behavioral approach, we really look at the context. And I think all of this happens in a cultural context. I... I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how how the cultural context around you know body perfection, even things like social media, fashion magazine, like what what are your thoughts on that? How what role that plays for people? Yeah, I mean it's huge, Debbie. It's almost hard to it's almost hard to isolate because it's so everywhere. Um, and and you're right. I mean the um, one of the great and terrible things I think about social media are the opportunities for comparison, the opportunities for a social context on what you're experiencing at any point. Um, so one of my mentors, and I'm probably, I don't want to even credit anyone because I have no idea where it came from, but I'm certain that it was one of my mentors says all the time, um, you know, we tend to compare our insides to other people's outsides. Um, and social media is all outside. So if you need an opportunity, you know, if you look inside and you think, I feel disgusting and gross and like people shouldn't even have to look at me, but then I look around and everybody looks well put together and confident and, you know, for the most part, people look not so disgusting and gross that I don't want to look at them. I'm comparing my insides to their outsides um, and then wondering why I feel so alone. You know, social media offers an opportunity for us to compare our insides to like innumerable outsides. And at any point, you know, it can be 3 a.m. and I can be up getting a glass of water and I can check out if like I'm as beautiful as, you know, 572 of my best friends. Um, you know, it's, it's a challenge. And if none of them are sitting on their Facebook wall saying, I feel so ugly and disgusting, then, you know, what opportunity do I have except that, that comparison, you know, outside of just social media, the, the idea, I think one of the, the sort of bits of evidence of how media shapes our um, beauty ideals and shapes that, that comparison, you know, that we tend to, uh, to adopt, you know, we can see very clear trends in what those beauty ideals are and how they change. So I grew up in the eighties, you know, um, Kate Moss, like Calvin Klein jeans hanging on your hips. What do we used to, we used to call it kind of like heroin, you know, heroin thin. I mean, right. you know, really like a sickly kind of skeletal thinness was intended as beautiful. I mean, we all know classic examples of like rotund, you know, um, folks in the middle ages and stuff, but even just in my lifetime, you know, the beauty ideal has gradually shifted from waist, waist thin, um, to fit. So now the idea is being fit and fit and athletic. And you'll hear some people saying that's good, right? Like that skeletal thinness, that was problematic. But now we're trying to emphasize people being fit and strong, especially, you know, women that's shifted, you know, it turns out it doesn't really matter whether I'm comparing myself to you know, Kate Moss in 1983 or, you know, the, the mom who had quadruplets and then got up and, you know, there's no excuse or whatever with all of her quadruplets and her, her athletic clothes, you know, that bodies are actually just all really different. And that comparison, that idea that there is an ideal body that anybody could approach if they just work hard enough, which is sort of the spirit of it now. It used to be um, anybody can be as thin as they want, as long as they're just sort of willing to not indulge, as long as they're willing to kind of suffer and not indulge and not give in. That was sort of the, the mode previously. And today, you know, it's really dominated by as long as you're willing to work hard enough. So as long as you're willing to work hard enough, you should be able to look a certain way and almost have the response responsibility to like as if people could look from the outside and just tell how willing you are to work mm -hmm. um you know based on what your body looks like which is i mean not only preposterous but incredibly problematic um for folks that are you know tend to be kind of um, yeah, have difficulties in this way, tend to self-assess, that they're always going to self-assess, um, that they are not, you know, beautiful or adequate or acceptable um, looking. 
Yeah, there's almost a moralizing element too. Absolutely. Too, that I think can be really problematic of like to be good, to be good enough, to be a good, hardworking person. You know, you have to do, look a certain way or do a certain thing. And it, it gets into that, you know, better than kind of deep inner core of not good enough. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it, interestingly, I think, especially on the, on the female side, you know, for men, it's been a more consistent, um, the emphasis that the ideal body type has been more consistent over time. You know, for women, though, we see um, changes in gender norms that parallel this exactly, you know, so what might have been in the early 80s, like don't indulge, you know, you want to kind of, um, you know, protect yourself from, you know, all of these indulgences that you might want and to sort of sacrifice is ideal. Like today it's, you know, super mom, like you should have a full career and you should have lots of kids and no nanny or, you know, maid or anything like that. You should be intellectual. You should have guy friends and girlfriends and be assertive, but also emotional. You know, you sort of, you sort of hear that same um that same thing kind of filtered down into and by the way you know you should be at the gym every day um you know with your children and your work at the all at the same time so the uh the gender norms that are kind of reflected in media i think we see pretty clearly in the body stuff you know but the problem here um is that um, is that ideal, that I- idea of an ideal at all. And the idea that that's even useful information in terms of health or fitness or certainly um, in terms of self-worth. Yeah, it feels to people like it should be achievable. It does, right? These high standards in every domain, it's just, it's too much. And yet we feel like we're not okay if we're not reaching that. Yeah. And I wouldn't even, it's like, I'm even, I even struggle to even call them high. It's like, it's just sort of bizarre. You know, it's like we arbitrarily picked a particular body type and said this, this one, this one right here, you know, when we know, I mean, and and physicians know it's, it's, um, you can't tell by looking from the outside how healthy someone is. Um, You can't tell by looking from the outside how much they think about or work on their, you know, their bodies or their health agenda. Um, That's just not something that, you know, is a good, a good proxy. Yeah. Well, speaking of of super moms (laughs) and lack thereof, we're both parents, right? I have kids, I have two daughters, you have kids. I think sometimes about messages I'm giving my kids and how to talk to them about things like their bodies and eating and food and health. What are your thoughts on that? Like, how do you talk to your own kids about these kind of issues? Do you have any tips for parents that are (laughs) thinking about this? This is a, a hard thing, right? Sure. Well, and you know, it's, it's, I'm laughing because it's like, do you mean like on my best day or on my worst day? <laughs> you know? Um, oh, that's so nice to hear you say, actually. Yeah. You're an expert in this field that maybe, yeah, you have your good and bad days. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, because it's, um, it, you at the same time as saying, you know, appearance doesn't, you know, or shouldn't be the most important thing. It shouldn't dominate. I mean, Clearly, we all take effort in wanting to create a particular impression. Um, And part of what we want to teach our kids is the impression that they are creating by the way that they dress, by the way that they hold themselves, the way that they fix their hair or wash their face. You know, Um, I have sort of two, two experiences. Um, and I, I say um, I have many experiences, but I kind of chunk them into two categories because my oldest is a daughter. Um, and so she is um, now in college, you know, but I think back to when she was in the home um, and uh, coming up and, you know, facing, I think for me, I think about middle school and high school facing for the first time, some of these real challenges that came from the outside. My daughter, Hannah, um, has always been she's always been kind of late to the game on what do other people think so you know at 10 she got a um, a jewelry like a glasses chain you know like elderly people wear for their reading glasses so she like had glasses that she needed to see all the time and she saw my grandmother's sort of chain coming off her and she, oh mama this is the most beautiful glasses necklace I've ever seen and she oh you can have it if you want 
and I have a ton, you know, she had them connected to all her reading glasses. So Hannah, you know, hooks it on her glasses and it never occurred to her that she had never seen another kid wearing that, you know, in middle school. At one point she started wearing a tie and like a sock on her wrist just because she thought it was pretty. Um, you know, watching that shift from that to suddenly her being aware that she was being judged um, by how she was dressing, that her um, degree of attention or affection that people showed her, the respect that even teachers showed her um, or other adults, you know, that that was contingent to some extent on what she looked like, um, I think was a really painful experience for us both to go through. I sort of watched that innocent sort of, I think that this is beautiful, so I'm going to put it on my body. <laughs> I watched that shift. Um, and for me, it was kind of a loss of, of a real innocence. Um, you know, when she would, um, and when she does, you know, certainly as we all do, um, come to me kind of with pain around her appearance or her body. Um, what I try to do is kind of be there with her there, um, in that experience. So, at times much to her chagrin rather than kind of rescuing her from that, you know, um, it's been sort of like, yeah, bodies feel like that sometimes, or, you know, sometimes it really sucks to have a body, <laughs> you know, sometimes, um, sometimes it's really, it's really crappy that people might look at your face and decide that they know something about who you are or who you're going to be, you know, based on, um, what your skin looks like or the kind of makeup that you have on, um, you know, so being kind of responsive when that pain comes up um, and kind of allying with her there and, you know, remarking that it sucks and that that's the kind of the way that the world is. Um, that always feels more straightforward to me than what about when there's not distress on the table? What about little lessons like, you know, you will be judged. Um, so Hannah also did speech and debate. And, you know, if you're going to win, you're going to look a certain way. Your hair is going to be fixed a certain way. You're going to be well-groomed. You're going to be dressed in a particular way. And that that is communicating not your worth, but that you know how to play the game. And so that's the way that we kind of talk. That's one example. But also the first time she was applying for jobs or, you know, meeting other people's parents or, you know, any of these events where she was going to be judged like speaking really pragmatically about those consequences, you know, um, speaking really pragmatically about what you might be communicating by the way that you dress um, or present yourself. Um, now, those are all controllable things, right? Like how you dress or how much makeup you wear, how you cut your hair. And, um, you know, there are plenty of things about the way that we look or present ourselves that are not controllable. So isolating the things that, um, that are easily manipulable, that are not things about her, and walking through the very specific pragmatic consequences that are, are likely to, uh, to occur if she makes certain choices. You know, if you don't wear a suit to the speech tournament, you're not going to win, and that might be fine. <laughs> you might not care that much about winning, but to the extent that you care about winning, you might should wear a suit. Um, and, you know, also hinting to her that if, like, one of the things that really matters to her is being able to look like whatever she wants to look like and that not impact her career and that not impact her relationships, that that's going to be up to her to create. Like, she's going to have to find a job like academia, <laughs> you know, where I get to have half of my head shaved and also be at the top of my game here. Like, I picked that on purpose, you know, because I get to wear my hair however I want or have piercings in my nose. Um, you know, not every job that I would apply for would allow that. Um, so helping her to practically um, interact with those real consequences to things like the way that I appear or the way that I eat in front of people, whatever it is, um, to contact those real consequences, not about things about her, about things about the context, you know, things about society or the way that it is. Um, I said I had two things in part because right now um, both of my sons are in middle school and it's a very different thing for little boys. So while Hannah was like fully ready to brush her hair and wash her face and like keep her clothes clean, you know, my boys are kind of gross. Like they're not <laughs> right on top of that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I find myself currently struggling with, like, what does it feel like for me to go, you know, your skin looks like you didn't wash your face today. You need to go and wash your face now, um, you know, to say something like that. Um, you know, is it, is it, 
yeah, is it, is it painful? Are they hearing like, I don't approve of you? You know, I think you're bad, you know? Um, so that, that to me is a challenge, like how to, how to say those things, you know, in ways that, you know, there are practical consequences. So, um, so for me, it's kind of almost a, a um, compassion around the experience of it and dispassion around the actual sort of practical consequences. Um, and I think there's probably lots of ways, as long as your kids are hearing, um, you know, lots of feedback on the kind of person that they are, you know, fully. Um, I think that that's another general thing. If kids aren't to that point, um, you know, being able to give them feedback about all aspects of themselves. A lot of times, you know, we call little girls pretty and, and little boys strong or fast um, or smart. Um, you know, making sure that our daughters hear sure if they look pretty like that they look pretty um maybe even some specific feedback on what is pretty like i really like how you curled your hair today it's very different from you were the prettiest little girl up there um you know one is about a way that you are and one is about a a thing that you did that worked um it's okay to comment on our you know our daughter's you know curls or you know pretty uh pretty outfit or anything like that i would say you know let's also though make sure that we're telling them like you know how smart it was to wear those tinnies today when they're gonna have to walk a lot or you know how clearly they speak or how funny they are when they make jokes um so again that breath um that you know, pragmatic, you know, pragmatic consequences where we really need to teach a lesson on um, that breath and how we compliment or, um, or show affection to them. And then I think, you know, compassion um, when there is struggle there. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that answer. I feel like that's very nuanced because sometimes I think about the messages about appearance I got growing up and focus on that. And I think, oh, well, I'll just avoid all that by not complimenting them or not talking about appearance. My kids are pretty little, so I think they haven't really kind of hit this. This hasn't been a big, huge issue yet. But I, what am I avoiding? You know, I'm trying to take like, oh, maybe if I just don't talk about it, then it's never sure. going to be an issue. And it's like, that's who am I kidding? You know, that's not going to work. So yeah. I like that sort of being compassionate, recognizing that this is a real struggle and then focusing more on the kind of pragmatics of it well even there are real like you know like there are real things I mean I never expect you know I certainly never had to chase Hannah around and try to get her to be more concerned about having zits or not you know Mm -hmm. Um, but you know my boys that might not be on their on their uh, front of their radar you know and that's a real thing that I want them to be able to know is how to take care of their bodies um again the the context you're looking at each person as an individual and what's yeah what's kind of needed in that situation absolutely absolutely and making the clear connection you know paying attention to your behavior and its consequences is not information about who you are. It's information about where you might have some growth to do, you know? Um, and that's it. That's all it is. Like you might, you might have to learn some stuff here. Um, and that's not who you are. It's just what you do. Yeah. Well, I have really enjoyed talking to you. You've given me a lot to think about today. I think I really appreciate the work that you're doing in this field and, you know, what you're providing to your clients and to the world by, by this perspective shift on, on how you're approaching body image and eating behavior. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It's it's been um, it's been an invigorating path. The the body image community and the eating disorders community have been so receptive to this work, and really, I don't even consider myself at the forefront of it anymore. As other people have sort of taken it over, um, folks like Jennifer Webb and the body image um, area sort of come to mind. You know, just have really taken this over and, and made it their own. So it's an exciting time, I think. Well, and along those lines, do you, how can people learn more or what do you recommend people do if they, if this sparks an interest? Absolutely. So um, as far as on the clinical side, so if they're therapists, social workers, counselors, you know, whatever it is that they call themselves, um, there's a few resources that I would point to. So um, I have a a professional, a book for professionals. It's kind of a treatment manual on act for eating disorders. I think I think it might be called acceptance and commitment therapy for eating disorders. <laughs> it is. I have it right here. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, and there's also, there's a similar, um, I think, manual, treatment manual on um, acceptance and commitment therapy for body image disorders 
satisfaction, which is, that's not mine, um, but it's, I recommend it. It's a, it's a good book. Um, there's also some self-help books. Um, so a couple that I've written and then some other folks. So uh, my favorite that I think is probably the broadest and it's the most difficult probably um, is living with your body and other things you hate. Um, the side story that the publishers really hated that title because they felt like it was so negative. And uh, in my experience, as I've kind of gone around my world and people have asked, you know, well, what's your book called? People hear that title and they know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, it can be in the bank. It can be another mom at a soccer game. And they're like, oh, I need that book. Um, and Living With Your Body and Other Things You Hate is really, it's a book on building body image flexibility. So it starts from awareness and then gradually building skills to get it to where we can be living more meaningfully, even with our bodies exactly like they are, even if we keep hating them, um, that we can learn to love and live with them. Um, so, so I always recommend that one. Um, in addition to folks have eating specific issues, there's an act for anorexia workbook. The anorexia workbook um, is what it's called. And, uh, and, and uh, mindfulness and acceptance for bulimia and other eating struggles. Um, and all of those, I think, really kind of complement one another. So for clinicians interested in getting into this work, I'd almost recommend grabbing a few of them. You know, there's worksheets and um, audio exercises that can be pulled from all of them. Um, and the feedback that I've gotten is it's, it's good work. It's hard work. Um, so people really being prepared, you know, inherent in the model is you're going to come up against all that stuff that you've been running from. Um, so doing that on your own can be challenging. Well, we will link to all of these wonderful resources on the show notes for the episode on our website, which is offtheclockpsych.com. So if people want a quick link, you can just find us there. And yeah, we'll refer people to those. And I really appreciate what you've done. And, and thanks again for coming on. Thanks so much, Debbie. I appreciate you. Take care. You too, Emily. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. Www